Welcome to Season 5 of American Political History, Rise of the Metropole, Dissension. King Charles II would have liked to frame his accounting reforms as fighting corruption and rewarding merit, which the radical accounting did do. But his opposition was dissenting from that, against the consolidation of power at the cost of English rights, which had been rightly won in the English Civil War. Most prominent of these rights was, first, Parliament's right to approve any new taxation upon the English population, and, second, the individual right of voicing political dissension within one's home. In June 1676, a speech by Francis Jenkins brought unfavorable attention to the Privy Council's activities. All of the cities, boroughs, and towns, corporations, in place of the principal trade throughout the whole kingdom, are truly in danger so that no rational man amongst us can provide himself, his wife, his children of a state of one night's security. After laying out the stakes, Jenkins would support Londoners' restrictions on English imports to France, attacking the king's foreign policy. Their privateers daily take our merchant ships as plunders. Englishmen sit in their prisons. This torment is to no great discouragement of our English navigation and has almost ruined our merchants. These grievances have been made to the government, and they have yet to have been addressed, much less has there been any redress. Yet, even worse than all of the grievances on trade was the ancient danger to the English, the festering of Catholic power within the monarchy. The survival of the Protestant religion was at hand, and it was once again threatened by the presence of the popish heir amongst the throne's aim for absolutism. Absolutism monarchy in England, which was backed by France and Rome's conspiratorial aims. The speech concluded that it was the French Catholics' subtle subversion that had infiltrated the king's government. This must be why Parliament has been corrupted and left in a state of stagnation, slowly being stripped of the powers granted after the Civil War. Only a fresh selection of representatives could revitalize Parliament, and so it could help guide the nation, protecting our lives, our properties, and our privileges as Englishmen. Only... A revitalized parliament can protect us from the popish conspiracy at hand aiming to make us a province and tributary of France and its papal authority. This speech by Francis Jenkins became a rallying cry around the empire to opposition to the monarchy. In the Americas, the speech was commonly read in public at meeting houses from Jamestown to St. Mary's to New York to Boston. Whitehall reacted to this speech swiftly. Jenkins was arrested in London. His warrant was signed by no fewer than 20 privy councillors. The councillors' authoritarian actions of arresting him without 
cause were met with open public resistance in London. King Charles II now faced a revival of printings of old political battles in English histories, all of which circled around the authoritarian tendencies of the English monarchies versus the ancient laws and rights of English liberty. The very real, still raw political battles that had led to English civil war were aflamed once again. Prominent London merchants posted Jenkins' bail and held him up for his fellow citizens as a champion of English liberty, the Protestant religion, and a free parliament. King Charles would counter, moving to consolidate his power over London. He commissioned the loyalist and assiduously petty Earl of Craven to command four regiment-sized military forces, which by happenstance would now be left to garrison indefinitely in London, for the securing and peace and quiet of the city and suppressing any tumultuous meetings of disorderly conduct. And then he let it be known that the Earl of Craven had his, the king's authority, to use these guards to execute anyone who could be interpreted as rebelling. Then the king invited himself to dine with the city fathers of London. Under the cloud of military intimidation, the city fathers tepidly made their protest when the king asked them what had gotten them all riled up. One father summarized the dinner as, inviting his majesty to share a roast, and then willingly sit there as his majesty beat them with the spit from that night's roast. Once the city fathers were sufficiently humbled, the king moved to have all city officials swear allegiance to the crown and pledge obedience to himself as king, requiring renouncement of any other competing doctrines of liberty that could allow them to take up arms against their king. Then the king disqualified several of the leading opposition candidates from holding office in any governmental posts. The elites of London would protest these actions, but quickly realized the utter uselessness of any loud protests, since King Charles II controlled the army garrison that was now within the city. But King Charles found what all authoritarian leaders find, which is that the expense of ruling through might is enormous. King Charles II was forced again to approach Parliament for new tax revenue. Presenting the wars in America as a crisis, the king asked for immediate resolution for additional funding to address the rebellion disrupting Virginia and the protection of the English merchant ships from French privateers. Parliament convened and addressed these issues of new taxation before taking up other concerns with the king. But after the king received the funding, King Charles then showed no interest in hearing any other grievance from Parliament. He already had the extra money he wanted. The war in New England strained the relationship between the colony and the metropole. The London Gazette, which was the unofficial voice of Whitehall, would print dozens of pamphlets in addition to newsletters detailing the King Philip's War. Almost all of these were critical of the New England government and colony. The consensus in London about the war was that it was the New Englanders' fault. They had provoked war with the Indians through the Puritans' greedy hunger for native lands. This war in New England with the Algonquians had spread Indian discontent south and was the primary cause for war with the Algonquian nations in Maryland and Virginia. These Indian wars, all up the coast, had exposed the military imbecility of colonial administrators. The administrators' corruption, which had diverted funds from defenses to their purses. 
and the war's ravages were exaggerated by the Puritans' stubbornness. They had continued to refuse aid throughout the war from London. This aid should have and would have quickly ended this minuscule Indian revolt. But they continued to refuse this aid because by receiving it, they would have had to clarify Boston's silly notion of political independence from the Crown's authorities. This whole King's Philip's War, which ravaged two-thirds of the colony, was because of the pride that prevented them from admitting that they were a possession of the Crown, which was obvious to everyone. Cotton Mather would write dissenting letters to push back this narrative in London. He would write that it was not the Puritans' greed or self-righteousness that had provoked war. In fact, it was the opposite. It was the consequence of their breaching of their compact with God. They had embraced the worldliness of commercial trade culture, a shot at London, making accommodations that led them away from the strict life of God that was the compact of the founding of the new Israel in New England. Mather would point out that the New Englanders had legally purchased all of the lands in their possession. It was the natives that had second thoughts after selling the land legally and stooped themselves to the savagery of warfare to fix their grievances. Mather's words were out of touch with the political consensus of London and the coffee houses. His rebuttal only re-emphasized the Puritans' arrogance and stubbornness. In the coffee houses, the real goal of the Puritans was self-apparent. They had hastily attempted to enlarge themselves so great that they could claim political and economic independence from London, and in their haste they had provoked natives around them into war, while still holding so tight onto their pride. They were not even willing to accept aid when two-thirds of their colony was being destroyed. The political rebuttal in the papers did nothing to address the stark facts on the ground in New England. The cost of this war was crippling to both economy and people. Most of the successful battles in the war were waged by the Mohawk, who had an alliance with the governor of New York. Without their aid, and the aid of the Crown's other possessions in America, New England surely would have been left as rubble except for a few large coastal towns like Boston. The political difficulty for the Crown was that King James I had conceded powerful rights to the Massachusetts Bay Company under the Charter of 1629. And so Whitehall was beginning the process that would directly threaten these rights. Whitehall was asking to review the charters. This process allowed the political enemies of New England to take their grievances to court in London. Whitehall took up the appeal of Robert Mason and Fernando Gorges, the original proprietors of New Hampshire that had been swallowed up by the Massachusetts Bay Company. They also took up reports that Massachusetts authorities actively circumvented the Navigation Acts. When the king was taking up bureaucratic authoritarian action against New England and its charter, it was not viewed in London as a move toward this popish absolutism or a threat to English liberty. It was seen as the crown finally doing what it should be doing for the majority of Englishmen. It meant that the crown was protecting national English patriotism, political morality, and most importantly, it was protecting the English merchant from the threats within and the threats outside the English Empire. The Massachusetts Bay Company's idea of being special, its uniqueness, and its arrogance in thinking it was above the rest of the English Empire, offended the Crown, the London merchants, and the coffee connoisseur alike. King Charles II had found his unifying issue. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.